from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Dark Mind Podcast, where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. Be sure to sign up for the email newsletter by clicking the link in the description, and be sure to follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. My guest today is the innovator of alternative fiction. His stories mix elements of psychological horror, sci-fi, and fantasy into a veritable tour de force of epic fiction. He's joining me today to discuss his recent work, Gollum, and his upcoming work, Jiggly Spot and the Zero Intellect. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of P.D. Oliva. PD, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me on this 29th day of April 2023. I came across your book, Gollum, by Bookstagram recommendation and was amazed by the intense level of conspiracy and intrigue that you wove into the story. Your otherworldly characters and surreal land and dreamscapes accented a truly terrifying tale that was as disturbing as it was enjoyable. So I'm excited to have you on the show today. I'm excited too. That introduction, I'm very excited as well. <laughs> well said. Take that any day. Absolutely. Well, the story centers around a newly promoted detective named John Ashton, who's put on a missing persons case that he's told is a dead end. They're just doing it as a courtesy because the missing person is the daughter of the district attorney. So you have a man that has the experience of a patrol officer, but is wet behind the ears when it comes to investigation. So he's simultaneously hardened and naive. So, what element of the story made it necessary for both of those qualities to exist? Oh, all right. Good question. Well, in the beginning, I had to give a reason to promote him to detective, right? So that's where the whole flat foot story comes in, into play, which allows him to have that promotion. But I needed him to be naive as well, because if, if he was a seasoned veteran, I don't think the story would have worked well with the ending. And how it ends up with John. I needed him to be that that naive person. Remember, too, he's also has clairvoyant capabilities, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that if like a seasoned person, a detective over that period of time would have come to grips with that clairvoyance and would have probably used it to his benefit. So I needed him to be naive when he went to face Gollum. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and if he didn't have at least a default mode of the experience of a patrol officer, I feel like he probably would have gotten eaten up before he got started. Yes, yeah, 100%, especially by <laughs> Gollum. He's yeah. one manipulative bastard. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, one of his first leads to follow up on is an interview with a woman named Elena that has been committed to a mental institution for setting a hotel on fire. She says that the young girl that Detective Ashton is looking for was staying in the hotel that she ran, as well as at her house, because a man named Golem, who she had created from a statue made of white marble, had been kidnapping children. The story then takes a flashback to the events leading up to the current moment. I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, this progression is called In Medias Res, and I was wondering what it is about that progression that makes a story more compelling than just a straight linear chronology. Cause I've noticed even in movies, Tarantino has employed it. That he has quite famously too. Mm-hmm. I think it's because it drops the reader in case of movies, the viewer right smack dab in the middle of the action. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no lead up to it. It's like, boom, it's like we're here and we're now. If that beginning or the middle of the novel, is so compelling what do you do and the reader wants to know what happened before and they definitely want to know where it's going as well so i think that dropping them straight into the action there's no lead up to it there's no you know build to it like you have in a a linear type of storyline so i think just the dropping straight into the action of like what the hell is going on here and you're so intrigued it allows the reader or the viewer to really just get involved and capture what is going on in that story Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, it varies between authors that I interview, but a lot of them will say the almost the first sentence or first paragraph needs to be something that catches the reader's attention. Yes. So what better way to catch the reader's attention than by dropping them right in the middle of the shit? You know, that's right. <laughs> the stuff going on. The novel that I'm writing right now is also starts the same way in meteorites as well. And it's just, boom, you're in it. As soon as you get in that first chapter, there's a murder going on Mm. right there. And then you're going back to find out how we got to that point. It's just, it's exciting stuff. Mm -hmm. So, but I've written other novels that are more linear and that takes a different type of writing style. You know, you're, you're dropping little tidbits here and there as you're building, you're climbing Mount Everest. Whereas in media res, you're already on top of Mount Everest and you got to look down this way and look down that way to find out where you're going. Mm. Yeah, I think when I became aware of it and its existence, like actually heard it phrased into a title, it was Chuck Palahniuk's book and also movie, I suppose, Fight Club. Uh, Yeah. One of my favorites, Mm -hmm. all-time favorites. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Movie too, right? And he did a sequel to that too, but it was a comic book I heard. Oh, okay. No. Uh-uh. I heard that, that he put it as like a graphic novel or something, something along those lines. I haven't read it, haven't looked for it, but that'd be interesting read. Yeah, I actually got to uh, see him when he came to Houston. There's a local bookstore, really cool local bookstore called uh, Murder by the Book that they they promoted it. They were going to have it there. But mm-hmm. there was such a mad response to it that they had to have it at this bar. There was too many people. And uh, he was with two other female authors. It was really interesting. That's fantastic. Yeah. I forget what it was titled. It was Dirty 
dirty bedtime stories or something. So everybody showed up in their pajamas. <laughs> Great concept. I like it. Yeah. That's funny. Tyler Durden too. I used his name for a character in my new book coming out, Jiggly Spot. It was kind of loosely based on Tyler Durden. Mm, yeah, that's that's a yeah. great character. Classic character. Mm. Well, circling back to your book, the impetus for the story is Elena's chance meeting with a gypsy named Maleva. And I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Is it Maleva? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Elena is pregnant, but trying to hide it because it would be looked down upon in high society to be pregnant out of wedlock. But Maleva knows and tells her that it's not good for the baby if you deny its existence, which, I mean, I can almost kind of see that myself. It should be celebrated, regardless of whether it's out of wedlock, is basically her contention. So we find out later on in the story why Maleva basically cursed Elena, but... What caused her to want to curse Elena specifically? Let's see. Her light. You know, Elena is, yeah, she's rich and she's that, but she's also very humble and caring and nurturing. And it's that, to me, it's always that light. Evil is always attracted to the light it seeks to destroy. Mm-hmm. And that's where Elena is coming from. She has this big light inside of her. Not only is she pregnant, but she, she's just a glowing human being. And when Maleva sees her, as well as Gollum, remember the goat is there as well at that time in that first scene. It's mm-hmm. like, that's the one. You know, that's mm-hmm. the one that we want. This is the one that he can hand off this curse to. Mm. So that ended up being a necessity then, was you, you couldn't find, like, well, I won't go into her friends because that would kind of create a spoiler. But you know, somebody that's not quite as altruistic and good-hearted, it just wouldn't be possible. Well, well, yes and no, <laughs> because if you have on the other side of that, right, how the story ends, that person, right, mm-hmm. is just re- keep that out, you know, no spoilers. So, mm-hmm. but that person is more kind of like the opposite of Alina, mm-hmm. right? And that person to take darkness to the nth degree as well. Okay. Right. So it's like that mix. Gotcha. Well, As a result of Elena's altercation with Maleva, she has a miscarriage and is rendered infertile, resulting in her husband leaving her. Was this result meant to create the vacuum needed to produce the longing to create the perfect man? Or was her desire to create the work of art completely out of her control? And can you kind of expand on that? Yes, it was both, right? How does an abuser get the person right? Mm -hmm. How do they do that? They go through isolation. They want to isolate that people from everyone they know, right? So the tragedies that are going on that Alina's going through creates that isolation. Everybody's leaving her. Nobody wants anything to do with her at that time. Mm -hmm. So that abuser gets to come in at that point. You know, I'm your savior type of person. Mm -hmm. So that is the vacuum that, you know, if you're an artist, what are you doing when life hits you the worst, right? Usually you go in, you go start creating at that point. However, and I think this is true for most artists. I know it's true for me. I don't like speaking for everyone else. <laughs> but when I'm writing a novel, to me, it's taking over. Like the novel itself is taking over. You know, the characters are in charge of where this story is going. I always like to say the first thing that comes up in my mind with a story is the ending. Okay. Like I know where the story the story is going. Right. But how this is where it's going to begin. This is where it's going to end. How they get there is completely up to those characters. It's like they all have their own free will. 
And that's kind of like what is going on with Alina when she starts creating the Gollum statue. It's willing her to continue. It's willing her to, you know, craft it in the perfect way for her and for itself as well. So it's, it's kind of like both, you know, they create all this to get her into the vacuum to create this man. And then all of a sudden Gollum is taking over the creation of that statue himself. You bring up an interesting point because one of the things I like to ask authors a lot is whether or not they're an outline or a pantser. And what you're speaking of isn't an outline in the sense of all these bullet points and subheadings and so on. But you did say that before you start, you know the beginning and the end. Yeah. And it's up to your characters to fill in the middle. Correct. That's Correct. awesome. It's like flying by the seat of my pants, but I know where it's going. But the excitement for me is that the journey is the excitement. Mm -hmm. The journey getting to that end. What's the finality for every human being? It's all death, right? Mm -hmm. But we know everything is our choice. You know, We all have that free will. Where we're going, how we're getting to that end is deciphered by us. So that kind of goes on with my characters too. It's like all of a sudden a character will, something will pop out and it's like, this is completely different than I was thinking, but all right, let's go with it and let's see where we can move it from there. Now, has there ever been a time where the ending has changed? Like as you're filling it in, you're like, you no. know what? No. Okay. No. So in a sense, it kind of is an outline. It's just an outline with two points. Correct. How <laughs> are you, you getting you from pants in between? B, right? Exactly. It's all up to you. So let's nice. have fun. Kind of a hybrid. Yes. Well, as Elena tells John about all these events, this is where the story of the Gollum comes in. Gollum comes from Jewish folklore and is an anthropomorphic being that's made from inanimate matter that can be benevolent or definitely malevolent. And you mention in the author note, watching the silent film Gollum, along with learning about the story of Pygmalion in Greek mythology while you were in college. So what confluence of events married those two stories for you to create the concept for the book? Was it like a short time span they occurred within or... It was actually probably, I'd say, about 15 years oh. in between the two. Okay. But I first heard the story of Pygmalion when I was in high school. And I remember that specifically because the a movie called Pretty Woman came out, right? <laughs> and mm -hmm. as we were learning the story of Pygmalion, the teacher started telling us, well, this movie is actually that story as well. You know, you're creating this person and making them who you want to be. And that's the kind of like the story of Pygmalion, relating it to it. Flash forward, what, 15, 20 years later, I'm in college, mm -hmm. taking a theater course, and we're about to watch My Fair Lady. And then the story of Pygmalion comes up. And for some reason, it just stayed with me at that point. Mm. I've always wanted to write like what I consider my Frankenstein story, right? And Dr. Victor Frankenstein creates this monster. Okay, gotcha. Fantastic. Obviously, I can't do that for my own Frankenstein novel, right? Mm -hmm. So I got to change it up. So the story of Pygmalion kind of stayed in the back of my head. And then years later, I'm watching the silent film Gone. I'm like, that's absolutely perfect. You know, it kind of fits into the narrative absolutely perfectly. And what if Victor Frankenstein, instead of being Victor Frankenstein, was a female Frankenstein creating this monster? How would that have changed that storyline and that narrative as well? Mm -hmm. So... Boom. Now we have Gollum, right? It made sense to me that an inanimate object comes to life. That's the perfect catalyst to put my Frankenstein novel into. Mm. Just kind of uh, 
an aside, I mean, I, you know, reading your novel, the complexity of the story, the complexity of the characters, some based on historical facts, some kind of altered a little bit. They kind of play out like a, a movie in my mind. Have you ever considered writing screenplays or have you written screenplays? I've written a couple screenplays back in my early 20s. Mm -hmm. haven't written one since. I do enjoy the screenplay, mm -hmm. but just a novelist, you know, yeah. it's, it's my medium. I mean, every I think every book that I write out there, I do want to be made into a movie at a certain point. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll make those movies myself in the future. Yeah, we'll see, right? Mm -hmm. Give me a few hundred million and I'm sure those movies will be made, right? But as far as screenplays, I don't think I would venture into that medium just yet. If I was to get in there and let's say Gollum was sold or whatever, let the professional script writers do what they got to do for the novel, right? But it's a great medium. Yeah, I guess the more I think about it, screenwriting is kind of a different skill set almost because yeah. you have to be real succinct and try to convey what you would convey over multiple pages into a, almost a set of instructions for the director. Like, yeah. this is what I'm envisioning type of thing. Yeah, I get that. Correct. Well, as Gollum is birthed, so to speak, and begins to mature, he slowly manipulates his surroundings as well as Elena's life. You kind of alluded to that already, the... Um, kind of the narcissist isolating people away from their loved ones. So you mentioned in the author's note that you developed the cunning, charismatic, deceptive part of Gollum from your experience working as a therapist in dealing with, I guess, narcissistic clients, or maybe this was when you were doing your time. Don't therapists have to do a certain amount of hours, like in a psychiatric hospital, possibly uh, there? Uh, really a certain amount of hours to get your licensure. It, Kind of doesn't matter where you're doing it. You can work in a mental health facility, substance abuse. Mm -hmm. So okay. that doesn't matter. But I'm sorry. Keep going with your question. Yeah. So I was just uh, curious, what was your process for blending and creating a balance of real life manipulation, the kind of stuff you would hear about in a true crime podcast with, for lack of a better term, magical or supernatural manipulation? All right. That's a fantastic question. So as far as the narcissistic components, I also utilize some of my own experiences with con men, unfortunately, and yeah. how con men, what do they do, right? They're your best friend. And as soon as you try to push back, they go after you, mm -hmm. right? They gaslight you. They make you feel like crap, right? So I use a lot of that with Gollum. And then as far as the supernatural, for lack of a better word, component, <laughs> I'm very... Hmm, it's like I love things like quantum physics, but I also love to learn about ancient wisdom, right? Mm -hmm. And how it relates to also quantum physics and energy and the metaphysics. So that's always on my mind. So I think it's done more organically than like planned out, right? Because all those concepts are always in my head and somewhere deep buried in the subconscious mind. And then it just comes out through the novel. Mm -hmm. So I think it's more organic than a planned event of what I'm doing. Okay. And when you say experience with con men, are you talking about in your personal life? Unfortunately, yes. Oh, my God. Yeah. Is that just like in business dealings or? Definitely in business dealings. So, and what do you got to do? You know, you got to push back. But if, as soon as you realize of what's going on, you know, and I'm not someone who likes to be yelled at or taken advantage <laughs> of, right? So it's like, no, 
this person's taken advantage of us and we need to, you know, move away from this person. But in that little tidbit of information of what they're trying to do in those moments, it's like, I got you, dude. You're not going to call me at this point. Mm -hmm. So, but especially in business, especially in the substance abuse business, there's mm. a lot of them out there. Yeah. And here's the thing, when you're making money, they come out of the woodwork mm. to get a piece. Mm. And you have to kind of fight off the sharks and the snakes <laughs> everywhere yeah. you go because everybody who's coming at you is wanting a piece of like whatever is going on in your industry. Yeah. Yeah. yeah if you, um, I don't know if you're a fan of horror movies or not. Uh, have you ever seen uh, Speak No Evil? I haven't, but I heard you mention this on another podcast. Oh my I'm God. definitely going to be watching it soon. If you want to, like see an elaborate display of a narcissist gaslighting and pushing people's personal boundaries until they just destroy them. I mean, it is incredible. <laughs> nice. No, see no evil. Speak no evil. Speak no evil. Yeah. It's How not, older movie? 2022, I think. 2022. Yeah. So not too old at all. Yeah, it's still uh, still on Shutter. Last time I saw, and uh, you can rent it on YouTube or iTunes, I believe. So, nice. yeah. The wife is going out with her mother tonight to the casino, so mm. I think I'll be watching her. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you'll right? love it. Especially being a therapist, I think you will really dig the psychology behind the story. Excellent. Well, so, speaking of movies, one of my favorite movies is Eyes Wide Shut, because I love the concept of the rich and wealthy having a connection to supernatural evil. And in your story, that connection is pretty intense. So I was trying to figure out, was the connection between the rich and powerful with evil in your story that the people involved gave themselves over to evil to obtain the wealth and power that they had? Or was it the default boredom of having everything that led them to seek out more intense levels of power? Hmm. Okay. So some of the people in the novel are poor that are getting their riches done to them right through mm -hmm. gollum and through being evil so that part is definitely true but for the most part with the people already rich and powerful in that story i think it's twofold i think it is the boredom aspect as well mm -hmm. right but even more than that i think it's how do i maintain my power right how do i maintain that it's funny as i was just watching the matrix reloaded <laughs> and they're right. What the Oracle says to Neo at a certain point is, why do all men with power want more power? Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think that fits perfectly into that question, because in Gollum, either they are being blackmailed by Gollum. And of course, they don't want to lose that power. Right. They mm -hmm. don't want to risk everything. So they're going to do whatever he wants at that point so they can maintain their power. And then with a few of the other characters in Gollum, it's you're all peasants and you ain't going to get what I want. Take mm. the scraps from my table type of stuff. How do I maintain that power? I need to be an evil son of a bitch, mm. right? In order to keep that power. Cause I don't want to share it with anyone. And that's where that evil kind of takes hold. Mm. Yeah. Money and power. I mean, it feels like it technically is a drug. I'm sure, sure. you're getting the same dopamine spikes and you basically, just like a drug, you develop a tolerance to it. You know, what What used to be the ambition to have a nice car and a nice house, once you get them, you want uh, four cars and a mansion. And then once yeah. you get those, you want 
uh, a mansion and a vacation house and a yacht, you know, I mean, yeah. and then the private jet, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sooner or later, rocket ships to the moon. Right. Yeah. Right? <laughs> like, yeah. We're going to colonize Mars. All you peasants stay down here on Earth. <laughs> I would love to go to Mars, right? I figured in 100 years, there's probably going to be spaceships going to like the moon on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so. Gollum seemed to have a bit of a Nietzschean philosophy on life. I mean, his conversations and his explanations of his personal philosophy to Elena, it kind of seemed like he leaned towards this sort of moral relativism. So did you ascribe the concepts of any particular philosophers into his thought processes? And if so, who? Hmm. So I did not. I didn't have any specific philosopher. I used to read philosophy when I was in my teenage years. And I think a lot of those concepts are also just in the mind. So with him, he's using that moral relativism to his benefit as a manipulation, right? So, but I think they came out more organically and say, like, pluck out this philosophy and say, let me, you know, make this Gollum's philosophy. I think that just came out organically as well. Hmm. Yeah, I guess if you're trying to convince somebody to do something immoral, the best way to make it palatable is to tell them, well, morality is just relative, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> Keeps them under your thumb, right? Mm-hmm. Well, Maleva was a very complex character. She brought Elena into the mess she was in because she wanted a reprieve from the endless suffering that she was in. However, once she learned the secret to Gollum's demise, she revealed it to Elena, even though she knew she was going to Shibalba when she died and would be punished severely. So we all we already kind of talked about Elena having this light that drew the darkness in Maleva to her. But what was it that brought her to the conclusion that Elena could take on Gollum. Was it that same light? It was the continuation of that light. Because what is it? It's a few years later that this incident is happening with Maliva showing Elena everything that's going on, right? And you need to kill Gollum. But it's at that time, too, there's a, it's kind of glossed over, but there's a part there where Alina is talking about her children, who are Jonah and Sophia, the two orphans, and how they're like mean to her. But that's also denoting that she's still caring for them and still loving them. So that light hasn't been corrupted completely at that point. Hmm. I think that's where Maliva sees her chance to say, okay, so I know this information. She's not completely corrupt. I could kind of save her soul and move on from there. Okay. I think that's the point. So it's more. She knew it was going to take some time, so it was more the ability for that light to endure. Correct. Okay. Correct. Not only that, Maliva also sees herself in Alina as well, mm-hmm. right? Because Maliva's backstory is like she was given this curse, but her person who gave her the curse was a um, just a bitch, you know? <laughs> just a complete, utter bitch and completely manipulated her, where as Maliva is just so destitute at that time that Alina comes in and she's been suffering for so long she just has to get rid of it and that guilt kind of comes back to say this woman is still not as corrupt she's not like the person who did this to me let me try to help this person and set things right Mm -hmm. 
And Shibalba, I looked that up, and if I remember correctly, I think it's related to the Mayans. Is that correct? It is. Yes. Right. So it's the portal to hell that's in the cave. Oh. You know, Shibalba is hell according to them, that they used to go into this cave and it was a portal to this other world, this hellish world, which they called Shabalba. Mm. And I think I heard it described as more broadly as like the underworld. Correct. Is it, is it, I don't know if you've ever heard of the perennial philosophy, you know, the, the common characteristics that all religions seem to share. Like I think like in theosophy, Helena, is it Helena Blavatsky? Or her last name was Blavatsky. She found a theosophy, and one of the primary components was the perennial philosophy, which there was these common elements that all religions shared. So therefore, there was a one true religion based on those common elements. And when I read the definition of Shibalba, meaning underworld, I was kind of thinking like, what are the common characteristics that the underworld of religions share, like Shibalba related to the Mayans? Of course, there's hell in Judeo-Christianity. Um, are you Hades? Hades, Hades as yeah. well, right? Yeah. So Hades would be the Greek mythology. So sorry, cut you off. Oh yeah, point? I was just curious if you were a little bit more well schooled in like, I guess, comparative religion than I am, that if there's some common characteristics that the underworlds of different religions share, because I had never heard of Shibalba until I read this book. Uh, you should watch Ancient Aliens. Ancient Aliens, that's where I got it. From. Oh, there's oh, an okay. episode in Ancient Aliens about the Mayans and how they they went to Shibalba through this portal, and Shibalba is the underworld and it's hell and all that good, crazy, evil stuff. But oh, okay. it was a portal according to the ancient alien theory, is that it's a portal to another world, Mm. this evil world. Mm -hmm. And that's concept of Shibalba took place. All right. Gotcha, yeah. Now, if you read Jiggly Spot, when it comes out, you go into Shibalba. Oh, okay. Yes. Cool. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely get to that. I've got that on the agenda. (laughs) Full beans. Well, in the... uh, the story there is a trinity of demons Gollum, nia and baphomet and the only thing i really know about baphomet is that the knights templar were accused of worshiping it so can you tell us a little bit about the research you did on baphomet and how you came to use it for the story gotcha yes 100 percent. so i was writing a short story maybe like 10 years ago called the calculated desolation of hope it's about this weary wanderer finds this house in the middle of the desert and there's a whole bunch of people there and there's a lot of evil stuff going on so i needed a there's a demon in there as well or a devil and at the time i was rereading faust right Mm -hmm. and in faust it's mephisto or mephistopheles however you want to pronounce it or whatever (laughs) and during that time i said oh let me do some research on mephisto so i was doing the research and out of that research baphomet came in Mm -hmm. i was like did a little bit of you know um, reading on baphomet i was like that's really cool and then you see the picture and it's the goat and the goat in Gollum came from actually the movie the witch which I thought was fantastic. Mm, I was like, well, yes. I need to put a goat in I need to put a goat in this mm-hmm. in this novel as well. Black Phillip was his name, I think. I, I think so, yeah. right? Black Phil or Black Phillip, something yeah. like that. Classic. Yeah. I absolutely love that movie. So when I'm writing Gollum, I'm like, 
blah, blah, blah. You know, all right. So that part with Baphomet actually came out very organically, was not a part of the original story in any way, shape or form. And then in the part where Alina is getting possessed, I needed something to possess her because at first in the back of my head, it was going to be Gollum that was going to be possessing her. Mm-hmm. And then obviously that wasn't going to take form. So organically, she's about to be possessed. I'm like, all right, so who is possessing her at this mm-hmm. point? And I'm like, let me do some research and figure this out. And then all of a sudden I just came upon Baphomet real quick. And I said, perfect. Mm-hmm. Throw him in there. Nice. And I guess sometimes the only way to explain something is, well, it's just something I inherently have. But in the case that there is something that you can attribute to it, when I read the scenes where the Baphomet was taking control of Elena, Mm -hmm. like, how do you get into that headspace? I mean, I felt like I was literally being possessed myself. Like, how do you put yourself in the space where you systematically describe all these different connections and feelings? You know, is it just inherent or is there a process? (laughs) All right, so most of it, when it's done organically, is definitely inherent, right? However, all the little nuances and everything afterwards is just editing, Mm. right? Going back into the story, okay, so this is happening, or this scene here, but it wasn't happening everywhere else. I need to kind of put and fit everything and make it fit, you know, for this to make sure that it's in there and that it makes sense, right? Mm My mind is quite strange. I'm right brain and left brain at the same time. <laughs> mm-hmm. When I'm writing a story, those like little nuances and little traits, I don't know, they kind of like stay with me. So I'm able to pluck it out and pick it out as soon as I need to during the editing process. Like the memory is there. So okay. good stuff. Right? Awesome. Yeah. That is uh <laughs> listeners at home, if you've not read this book, you're in for a treat. <laughs> it is. It is. I remember one scene when um, when Alina's possessed and she's with Naya, that mm-hmm. scene when she's with Naya. Mm-hmm. I remember I said something really disgusting to my wife after that scene. I think I just successfully did, and I don't want to give it away, but I successfully did this, and mm-hmm. it came out really good. And she just looked at me and like, there's something wrong with you. How am I married to you? Right? So, uh, <laughs> but it's fantastic. I think I, think I pulled it off, right? Uh, Get so excited. Does your wife read your work? Now, my wife does not like horror. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Now, she's read my literary novels, but not the horror ones. What's mm. funny is over time, right, some movies and stuff like that, I've been able to get her to watch horror. Most recently, Return of the Living Dead, mm. 1987, mm-hmm. which I told her, I said, this is a classic. It's hilarious. You know, it's, mm. yes, it's filled with blood and guts and it's disgusting and stuff, <laughs> but it's also old. So it doesn't look that real. Yeah. And I think you're going to laugh. And it's, she loved it. Yeah. Loved it. Probably one of the most proudest moments of my life. <laughs> like, yes. See, I told you. Yeah. Now, when I watch it, I don't have to watch it by myself. We could watch it together on uh, Halloween. The key right? to a happy marriage. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, We've talked about the story of Gollum and its influence on your story, but what about Nia? Or am I pronouncing that right, Nia? Yes. Okay. Because all I found is that it's an Arabic name that means caring. And I came across the search result in the Urban Dictionary that says Nia are goddesses with nice asses. (laughs) That's too funny. I did not read that one. (laughs) I assume that's not what you're talking about. (laughs) 
No, <laughs> definitely not. Definitely not. So, all right, with Mia, to me, she's, I don't want to give away spoilers either, but she is actually a central character. She's such a side character, but she's so subtle. And I think she sneaks up on you towards the end. Mm-hmm. Then you're like, holy cow, I can't believe that that is this person, right? Mm-hmm. And she's not kind and she's not nice in any way, shape, or form. I kind of like took the name and went the complete opposite direction mm-hmm. with her character. So is she based on like Gollum and Baphomet? Is she based on anything real or? No, okay. no. Just done organically. Because the first chapter, she's introduced just by, you know, Annette mentioning her. And then as the story was progressing with that, she kind of kept taking on a bigger role with me. And I said, wait a minute, I think I got something here with this. She's the the subtle character. She's what I refer to the hand up Mona Lisa's skirt. <laughs> you know? Yeah. The thing that you don't see and you don't see it coming. And then, bang, she like grabs you. Mm-hmm. So... When Aline is telling her story, I needed a way to weave her into that part of the story. And that's what came out in that scene with her and Alina. And remember, she's even um, first introduced because she's singing and she's singing the gum and she's singing actually a song from the musical Faust as well. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So she's a part of that, but she's being indoctrinated into them in that scene as well. So I guess that's a uh, a shining example of how the character gets you from the beginning to the end. Yes, that it is. Well, let's see here. In the end, I'm going to try not to give anything away here, but in the end, Gollum was not prepared for Elena's level of endurance, and you find out what a truly good heart she has. Hmm. So... Do you believe that that kind of purely non-reciprocal altruism exists outside of fiction? For the sake of the human race, I hope so. (laughs) Right? Yeah. I do. I know that exists because I know I've done things like that myself. Mm -hmm. Right? And I've seen other people. I know of other people doing it for other people. So I do know that it exists, but it I don't believe that it exists on a larger scale or a scale that it should exist mm-hmm. out there, yeah. right? Which is quite unfortunate. People should do things for other people without expecting anything in return. Mm-hmm. You know, makes the world a better place, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. What about what about if they don't expect you know anything in return from whoever they've helped, but in their head they're like, "Well, I'm going to be rewarded in the afterlife in some way." Gotcha. That's interesting. I've not thought about that. Which I think when people do it, I don't think that's their intention or the thought process. It could be like afterwards that, hey, yeah, I think I'll get into heaven for that. Mm -hmm. But I think it's more of an afterthought than the intention behind it. Okay. Now, not for everyone. Like some people are doing it because that's their religion or, you know, that's the way that they were taught. And they, they know in the back of their head, if I do good things like this, you know, when I go, I go to heaven or, you know, whatever great place exists out there beyond our earthly reality. So I do think that's there too. So even the true altruistic person (laughs) is probably even lesser on the scale. Mm. 
Well, I cannot say enough good things about this book. It is, I mean, even the, if I saw this book at a Barnes and Noble facing out and saw this cover, I would stop dead in my tracks. Like, what the hell is this? I got a, what? <laughs> the, uh, the cover is great. Um, yes. The book, solid. I take no credit for that cover either. SherryFox.com. Go to it. She's done, what, let's see, one, two, three, four of my covers so far. She's absolutely fantastic. She okay. nails it every time. Awesome. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Is there a an artist we can plug for the cover? That is. Yeah. SherryFox.com. All right. I'll definitely try to remember to put that in the uh, description. But as we have alluded to earlier, you have a new book coming out called Jiggly Spot and the Zero Intellect, which yes. is one hell of a title. <laughs> I know. I love it, right? It's classic. Tell us a little bit about that. Jiggly Spot is what I refer to as my COVID quarantine satirical cosmic grindhouse horror fantasy thriller novel. All right. All right. An, e an even Ooh. more interesting description than the title. <laughs> right. It's Carnivals, Cannibals, and Clowns. It's my nod to... Whereas Gollum is like my nod to like Frankenstein, you know, classic monster, Dracula, stuff like that. Jiggly Spot is my nod to Grindhouse B-rated horror movies from the 70s and 80s. Hell yes. Right? <laughs> it is definitely psychological, psychologically scathing, but it's more of the upfront, in-your-face type of horror. Mm -hmm. And Jiggly Spot is a five-foot-tall, half-human, half-warlock, carnival clown who also moonlights as a drug-dealing pimp and a lackey for demonic forces from Shabalba. Do I even need to read this book? Everything you just said is just amazing. I, I think I can take enough away from the description, but I'm going to read it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's what's going on is it's 2019, Ryan, and some things in Jiggly's faction of um, demonic forces and stuff that they're doing is kind of put on hiatus because one of their most prominent people have been arrested, mm -hmm. which is threatening their prestigious summer solstice celebration at Cannibal Cafe not to happen this year. <laughs> so they send a telepathic message to Jiggly Spot that he's got to pull this summer solstice celebration off. It's highly mm -hmm. important. So the story follows him along with five other main characters getting all the way to this summer solstice cannibal celebration, which also has portals to Shibulba. It's a <laughs> wild ride, right? We got carnivals, cannibals, and clowns. They even have, um, Jiggly was raised, his grandmother orphaned him about a very young age, and he was raised by a species of clowns. Well, they're not clowns. They come dressed as clowns on Earth, mm -hmm. but they're from outer space. So is is the clown and the face paint is it like a disguise? Do they look correct? Okay. When they came to pick up Jiggly Spot, because he's half warlock, and this species owes a debt to the warlocks, right, which perished many years ago, mm -hmm. they owe a debt, so they came to pick him up to take care of him. So when they came, because they're so distorted, their features, they didn't want to scare him, so they came dressed as clowns. Mm which kicked off Jiggly, why he loves clowns so much. And his hero is John Wayne Gacy. <laughs> He's quite a character, and he loves his scalpel. He calls it Mr. Scalpel. So it's all about <laughs> him getting the summer solstice celebration, while there's many other storylines going as well. Uh -huh. There's six main characters, and it's all multiple points of view. But it's whereas Gollum is long and in-depth, 
jiggly spot at the quick short chapters it's a thriller mm-hmm. i think it's a thriller more than anything else and you have all those horror elements grotesque horror elements going on in that one uh-huh. it's quite a fun ride all right i didn't think it got any more bizarre than Gollum, but you just proved me wrong <laughs> <laughs> it's a wild one. Oh, so what's the uh projected uh date for that halloween how oh that's right i saw it october 31st yeah nice beautiful yeah look forward to that so speaking of your writing you've coined your own genre in fiction that you refer to as alternative fiction can you explain it to us and tell us where you felt constrained by traditional genres that necessitated your breaking of the mold sure i don't like placing limits on myself mm-hmm. one two i mean what it is is multi-genre right but i don't like the word multi-genre it sounds like you got marbles in your mouth right <laughs> yeah so I'm like all right so i'm writing multi-genres but i don't like the term multi-genre so what am i gonna do right so i'm a grunge kid i'm from the 90s it's yeah. alternative fiction this is what i'm writing you know mm-hmm. things that aren't uh all right let's get into traditional publishing for a second i love traditional publishing fantastic books out there but i have noticed in the last like 10 20 years it seems like i've read the same story multiple times it Mm -hmm. seems like they have their cookie cutter formula going on right yeah and i'm not into it right i mean yeah don't get me wrong it's entertaining but the the depth is it seems to be gone seems to be missing from a lot of those traditional published books so I don't like constraints. I don't like limits. I'm going to put whatever's in that book that comes to mind, and that's the way it's going to go. But I'm also mixing many elements as well, right? Mm-hmm. So horror always has a little element of a little fantasy, a little science fiction in there. My science fiction has a little bit of horror in it as well. And then they're all thrillers or mysteries, you know, either or is in there too. So if you blend all those together, and I put my own little spin on it, mm-hmm. I call it alternative fiction. It's kind of like the uh, the MMA of fiction, I suppose. Nice. <laughs> you cher- like cherry-picked from uh, different disciplines to develop your own writing style. Yes. Yeah, very nice. Well, which writing influence would you credit with showing you that you can write outside the lines of genre? And can you tell me about the first experience reading their work? Yeah, so, so two main authors come to mind right off the bat. Stephen King, naturally, right? Mm-hmm. right? We probably all talk, bring up Stephen King oh, in a yeah. certain part in the interview, right? Mm-hmm. And then the next one would actually be Ray Bradbury, mm. right? Think about it, right? So Fahrenheit, mm-hmm. right? Something Wicked This Way Comes, and then the Halloween tree, all completely different genres, mm-hmm. right? So that just proves that we, we could definitely mix as a writer into different genres. And then let's bring in Stephen King. Let's just go with it. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, it's hard. One hundred percent. You read that book, you're scared as a mother. <laughs> On the flip side, he's also like fantasy elements are in there as well. Mm-hmm. Right. So he's mixing that both in into that as well. Now, let's even go to The Shining. Right. You got this deep psychological horror masterpiece going on Mm -hmm. and then at the end of that story right from the book at least the bushes come to life in the book they come to life there's um what is it with the crafting where they create like a lion out of a bush or something like that Mm -hmm. in that novel they're coming to life as well so he's mixing that fantasy element comes in as well now when i'm reading these novels 
I'm like between 12 and 16 years old for both Bradbury and for Stephen King, those specific books. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's like the norm. You know, as I'm going on, it's like that's the norm is to mix things in like that. You know, it's not everything could just be, you know, just stay and limit yourself to this one specific thing that's going on. Mm. We could add and we could broaden it and make it so much better and so much more entertaining for the reader, too. Well, a brief aside about King, just out of curiosity, do you prefer one over the other as far as his novels and his short stories? I love the novels. I'm a novel reader. You know? I grew up on the classics. I love big novels. Give me Weathering Heights, you know, mm. Dante's Inferno, Paradise Lost. Give me The Hunchback of Notre Dame, The Fountainhead, Hemingway. Keep mm. going. I do love a nice big novel, right? Okay. So don't get me wrong. He's got great short stories, but I do prefer his novels and more or less his older novels as well. I think the best book he's written in a long time was The Institute. came out maybe like four years ago. Other than that, yeah, they've been all right, you know. Mm -hmm. But those old novels, like, and he had no constraints on them whatsoever at that point. Carrie was such a big, huge success. He could do anything at that point, you know, that he wanted <laughs> at the yeah. point. And what do we have? We have Pet Cemetery. We got The Shining. You know, we got Salem's Lot. It's like, just go buck wild and let that imagination run amok. Mm -hmm. Have a great time doing it. So, but I do love the novels, a nice big novel. Yeah. Well, when did you start writing seriously with the intent to publish and what was going on in your life at the time? Okay, so I wrote my first book when I was 12 years old. Damn. Right. It was a <laughs> it was it was a based on a dream that I had. So it was a fantasy novel. It's based on a dream I had along with a huge influence from Dungeons and Dragons and at that time The Hobbit. I hadn't read Lord of the Rings yet, but at that time The Hobbit. So that was at 12. So I've always, I think I've written over like 30 books at this point, but only a few have been published. When I was 24 years old, right, mm -hmm. I had my first child. Mm -hmm. When you have your first child, you need to go to work and you need to take care of the family, right? So the writing took a took a back door, right, or took a um, back seat at that point. So I've always written and written. And then I had my first book published in 2011. But at the same time, I was also opening up my own business. So it still took a back seat at that point. But about 2016, 2017, I went through a very difficult time. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I was writing a book that became it's already published presenting the marriage of Kellyanne and Jerry Denimer, which is a book that after I wrote it, it restored me to my sanity. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. I put it off for such a long period of time. I want to go and start this writing career and make it pay the bills. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. So that's 2016, 2017, when I started learning about the industry and the business. Before that, I'd be like, all right, a book is published. It's out good. You know, let people read it. But I'm still focused on all this other stuff. Right now it's OK. So we're publishing books. Let's start getting into the business aspect of it. Learn it, understand it. And let's start making some money. Mm, okay. Got to pay the bills and we got to eat, right? Hell yeah. Well, I see that this book was published by Quill and Birch Publishing, which uh, from what I read, I, I went to their website. They're uh, geared towards uh, indie publishers. So can you tell us a little bit about them and your publishing evolution beforehand? Yes. 
Yeah, no, 100%. So Quillen Birch Publishing is actually owned by a woman named Vanessa Petrillo, who is also happened to be my cousin. Oh, right? okay. Fantastic, right? So she and I are probably the only people in our family who have been literary our entire lives. Mm-hmm. Now, she's worked for all the major publishing houses as a content editor for the past 30 years. She was relocating out of um, Brooklyn, New York. We're all New Yorkers. Mm-hmm. Relocating down to Florida, which is where I live. And then we kind of, for a while there, I mean, your cousins, you know, you lose communication. She's coming down. We regain, right? And it just has all happened at that point. I'm coming out with Twisted Tales of Deceit and then presenting the marriage. And we're like, well, let's do this. She wanted to open up her own small publishing house. So let's publish your books. Let's see how it goes. Let's learn. It's all about learning the business at one point. Mm-hmm. Now what we're doing is we're creating another company called Chamber Door Publishing. So Chamber Door Publishing is going to cater to horror, sci-fi, fantasy. Quillen Birch, and she, this has always been a passion of hers, she wants to do and focus on memoirs nonfiction books. Oh. So that's where the two of those are going at a certain point. So in about a year, we figure well, a little bit more than a year, we're going to start taking on new authors and looking at manuscripts. What we also plan on doing in the future is we want to do like a weird tales type of pulp fiction magazine. Mm-hmm. So we have that probably chamber door magazine or something like that, mm-hmm. probably in the future as well. That's kind of like, we both grew up on Pulp Fiction magazines and then, you know, literary periodicals and stuff. So we've always wanted to do that probably the last 30 years, I'd say, together. So we're mm-hmm. kind of building towards that while taking on new writers as well. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah, there's. I don't know if the general population realizes what they're missing out on by disregarding the indie community, you know, just sticking with yeah. mainstream. Like there's just yeah, no. so much you can't find you know, at your, your local big box bookstore. Correct. Agreed. And she um, got very disenfranchised by the big publishers, too, because she would see so many great manuscripts that should have been published that they threw in the trash bin because it didn't fit yeah. their philosophy. Let's just put it that way. So over time, she's like, you know, these are great books. And then they did find a book that they knew had that huge marketing potential. They change a lot of it as well. Yeah. She didn't like that, too. So she was like, I need to get out. I want to start doing something else, start going my own direction. Yeah. Well, you describe yourself in your bio as a lover of isolation and are either the life of the party or the oddball sitting in the corner, which I am definitely... Probably the latter more than the former, but I can be the former every once in a while. So would you describe yourself as an introvert? And if so, would you say that being an introvert is almost a prerequisite to write compelling fiction? Hmm. I'm definitely an introvert. I can't be extroverted without a problem. You know, I've, as I think a survival mechanism, when you're running, when you have to go in and do a group to like 40 people, mm-hmm. you need to get out of all over your introversion yeah. quite quickly, right? Yeah. So all these people are looking at you for the answers. Uh-huh. So I had to become an extrovert just out of survival mode. And not only that, I'm here to help people, right? So you got to maintain, you got to be professional. But in my personality, mm-hmm. 100% introverted. I love being in my own head. 
Yeah. It's the safest place on the planet. <laughs> you can leave me in a room with blank walls and I'll be perfectly fine for a very long period of time. Ugh. So not a problem. Is it a prerequisite for being a writer? Well, not not for being a writer, for writing fiction. Compelling writing fiction. fiction. Compelling I mean, I'm sure, you know, like Ernest Hemingway, he wrote fiction. Uh, or actually, that's a bad example. Um, there's plenty of extroverts that write like nonfiction, you know, their, yes. their memoirs, you know, how-to books, stuff like that. Just like real compelling fiction. It seems to me like you would need to be turned inward like damn near 70% of the time. I agree with you 100% on that. I don't know if an extrovert would have the sit-down capacity, number one, to actually sit there and be so in tuned and just stay in their mind without having, you know, those extroverts, they need that connection to the outside. They need to be there, mm. you know, to find that significance within themselves. So getting them to just sit down, sometimes they can't even sit down for more than five minutes, let alone a few hours where yeah. they're just typing away and the, you know, the images and the voices are in their head, you know, <laughs> can they sit there? It's possible, right? Mm. I don't ever want to say anything is absolute, but I would say being an introvert makes you a better compelling author. Yeah. Yes. Because you're in that head and that's your space. And not only that, you're comfortable in that space. A lot of people aren't comfortable being in their own head, right? I yeah. hear it all the time, right? Yeah. I can't get out of my head. I can't get out of my head. I'm uh, like, well, I used, I used to be like that, but now I love it, you know? As Kurt Cobain said, today I found my friends. They're in my head. Yeah, yeah? absolutely. So, classic. <laughs> Truth bomb. Right. <laughs> yeah. I have a, a history of uh, alcoholism in the family with myself. So I've been sober for about 10 years. But one of the things I, I am definitely Excellent. I am definitely an introvert. And I guess we should probably clarify a lot of people think introvert means you're shy, which can be true. But what it means is you're turned inward. So I'm definitely an introvert. But I can be an extrovert for my job when needed to. But the the reason I brought up the history of addiction is in uh, twelve step groups they have a saying where my mind is like a bad neighborhood. If I stay in it too long, I might get my ass kicked. So yeah, it's too funny. <laughs> there's there's exceptions to every rule, I suppose. <laughs> that there is. That there is. Well, when did you find your literary voice, and how did you know that you had found it? Uh, we're going back to presenting the marriage of Kellyanne and Jerry Denimer. So the books I was writing before that were more literary, mm -hmm. right, in scope. So presenting the marriage when I was writing it, it was kind of like that bridge. It was that bridge from that literary type of storytelling and writing style to more of a thriller type of writing style. And I actually credit Dan Brown and Robert Langdon, his Robert Langdon series with a lot of that as well. Mm. So I love those books. And he's, it's a thriller, of course, but he's also writing in multiple points of view. And that really rang true to me. And then with presenting the marriage, I wanted to break out of that literary type of cycle as well and kind of married that literary with the fast-paced thriller type novel multiple points of view so i think that's when i first found my voice and since then rose volume one that's my sci-fi fantasy about alien vampires as well as volume two 
Gollum is like that. And Jigglypuff is really like that with six different <laughs> main characters. <laughs> you know, so I, I credit that to presenting the marriage because that's the first time I started writing in a different style that took me in this direction. Hmm. Yeah, you bring up Dan Brown. I did a little, you know, research on him and the amount of research he does for his books is just insane. When it comes to research for your books, do you really delve in deep like that? Or is um, most of yours kind of, you get a hold of some facts and then you let the creative process take over? Mostly like that. Get a hold of facts, let the creative process take over. I think with Gollum, I did more research than any other book, but mostly because I had to research the time period. Mm. And what was going on, how people interacted. And then little things like in the beginning, it takes place on Halloween, right? Tootsie Rolls were the most popular candy at that time in 1951. It's a Halloween. What are the kids wearing? Yeah. You know, obviously they're not wearing Iron Man costumes, no, right? No, no. So yeah. <laughs> you got to figure that out, <laughs> right? And then what was it? It was Dorothy, right? Uh-huh. Scarecrow, Tidman. Those were the, the most popular at that time. And then other things, too, especially because, I mean, Gollum deals a lot with corruption, right? So I needed scandal. I needed things like that at the time. Of course, I'm a New Yorker, so I could say this. It's riddled with scandals, the entire history of New York. So I needed to know what scandals were going on during that period of time. So a lot of research went into it. And that's where I found out about the, um, the Clarefield. The hotel, mm-hmm. which is actually based on a real hotel that actually did burn down in that same year called the Claremont Inn in the same location as well. That's how I happened to come upon that because originally the story was just going to take place in the 1940s. But when I read that about the hotel burning down, I'm like that fits perfectly. Mm-hmm. You had all these prominent guests come into this hotel. It's a very prestigious inn for like, I think about a hundred years in New York. And then it burns down. Right. Mm-hmm. And according to them, it burned down to hot coals left unattended. That's the exact reason they gave. So I'm like, I'm going to use that in the story oh, as well. Oh, my God. Exactly. So a lot of research went into that novel, a lot more than all the other ones. Okay. Well, when you're writing these epic tales, do you have a schedule that you adhere to? Like you kind of fit it in with your, your day job? I do. So I get up at 4 a.m. Damn. Yeah. Mm. Get up at 4 a.m., drink my coffee, take care of some business, if you know what I mean. <laughs> we'll review some That emails. damn coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Does it every time, right? Uh, <laughs> review some emails and things like that. But then I definitely I read what I wrote the day before, mm-hmm. right? And when I'm writing, too, whenever I stop to write, I always stop at the next chapter and write at least a paragraph there. So I already know where the story is going for that day. But then I'll reread what I wrote the day before and go through it, you know, maybe do some light edits, stuff like that, and then begin to write. But there are times when, and this really came true in Jigglypuff. Jigglypuff is a monster of a novel. It's 157,000 words and it took Whoa. me seven months to write, right? So that's a monster. And so with Jiggly... How, just for comparison, how much was Gollum? Gollum is just under 120. I think it was 114. Wow. Yeah. Oof. And <laughs> That's going to be a brick. <laughs> it, it is a brick. It is a brick. So... But it's fast paced. What's funny mm-hmm. is early reviews, everyone's saying they devour it like that. Oh, yeah. It, it I can gets imagine. Because it's so fast paced. And there's mm-hmm. so many what the fuck moments. In that. It's like, <laughs> what the hell did I just read? Man? Yeah. So, but 
forgot where were we going what was the question i lost my oh just the the schedule you were on oh the schedule okay so sometimes what will happen is a character will change the story or a character will all of a sudden do something out of character i wasn't expecting or it'll take on a new twist and i will sit on that for like a day or two and not write i'll do some editing going back but i'm kind of like letting the story formulate in my brain to say okay where is it going now where are they meaning to go and jiggly spot was the worst offender in doing that to me mm-hmm. that motherfucker dude so <laughs> <laughs> the story would go something completely different i'd be like where where is this going and then all of a sudden a couple of days later it would just dawn on me like that where it was going mm-hmm. I'd say you son of a bitch jiggly spot you did it again <laughs> and that followed me the whole way through in that seven months nice so it sounds like you don't really do one single thing at a time you're constantly you're doing the editing and the writing simultaneously i guess is what i'm trying to say yes okay for the most part and then when the story is completely done i put it aside for about three months you got to get away from it right? yeah that's what i hear yeah <laughs> well remember too you can't see the forest from the trees right mm-hmm. yeah so you're in the trees you're in the woods at that point so you got to put it aside so you can get out of the forest, you know, go do some downtime, relax, and then bring it back and get into it and see it from a different perspective. Because when you're editing, this is where that right brain, left brain, creative mind versus technical mind comes in. Editing is a completely new hat. You're, you're going at it a completely different way. All emotions got to be gone and it's all business, mm-hmm. right? And we, we need to do what we got to do with this novel. I edited Jiggly Spot for an entire year. Mm-hmm. Right. It was just done this January and I started the January before. So a long period of time. But with Jiggly Spot, it's so long. There's so many different moving parts. Mm-hmm. That attention to detail, you know, if you if you fuck up <laughs> on page fifty, yeah. right? Or let's say you fuck up on page two eighty, uh-huh. right? You gotta go and fix two hundred and eighty pages worth of shit. Yeah. Right? Oh god. And make that it sounds like an... That's what I call having a bad day. Uh-huh. Yeah. Jesus. So you do all your own editing? So I've used private editors as well. Okay. My experience has been is that they fuck up too. (laughs) And and they take your money. (laughs) And they take your money, right? So I do a combination of both. So my cousin does do a lot of my editing mostly. I also use a program called Pro Writing Aid, which is a fantastic program, you know, Fantastic editing program. Very impressed with it. You can only do about 10,000 words at a time, though, or mm-hmm. it gets bogged down, which is perfect for editing anyway. You want to compartmentalize and pull it out. Mm-hmm. But their editing program is absolutely state-of-the-art. It's pretty wow. fantastic. Is it expensive? I highly recommend it. It's not. It costs me like 20 bucks a month. What? Oh, yeah. okay. So it's a subscription. Yeah. Interesting. And, you can get, of course, you could do it for free as well. Oh, really? Yeah. You can, if you're doing like basic stuff, if you need to edit, um, like basically if you're a college student and stuff like that, you get a free subscription. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Well, speaking of your job as a therapist, do you feel that your work as a therapist has helped you see what truly makes people tick so that you can create characters with depth? And if so, is there something you can recommend to other writers that'll help them with the development of the complexity of their characters other than going to school to be a therapist? (laughs) I I would say definitely, you know, you can't do therapy all day, every day for years on end and not figure out how people tick, Mm -hmm. you know, and those little nuances. Um, 
And remember, it all comes down to the person's belief system anyway. So you get a lot of different beliefs. But I think even more than that is the amount of people and the wide variety of people that I've been able to come in contact with. Because the treatment center industry, when I had my place, we had 120 patients in there. I've worked at other treatment centers that have pretty much that amount of, of patients and sometimes a little bit more, down to 40 patients, you know. But that amount of people coming from all over the world, right? Mm. All, mostly from the United States, but all different pockets of the United States. And then people from um, over in Europe coming in as well. You get to see so many people. It really kind of clicks home with you of those little nuances. And it's the mannerisms that really always get me. Mm. How people, you know, the, those little quirks that people have. And I like to put those quirks into my characters because I feel that it makes them more real on yeah. the page, more realistic for mm. the reader as well to accept them and then therefore accept what they're doing as well. Mm. So, yes, I, I definitely believe that being a psychologist has helped me with that. Okay. What people could do, though, right? One, observe people. You know, I know most writers are people watchers, right? Mm -hmm. I used to go to, this is strange, right? (laughs) I used to to go to Walmart, right? Uh And I would sit outside of Walmart and just watch people. This is between marriages, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) And watch people coming in and out, right? Uh Because I like to people watch, you Mm -hmm. know, although it seems very strange, but it also helps with that psychological component as well. And even more, if I'm writing a novel, I want to see how people react in their interactions with each other. Mm. That is a great, just go out people watching. What you could also do, if you're writing something and you have a particular character that you want to take on particular, let's say, diagnosis traits or whatever, go and interview a psychologist, Mm -hmm. right? And ask them, especially a psychologist that maybe specializes in whatever trait you're trying to bring in or try to write about, what are the ticks? What are the quirks? What are their belief systems? Has their mind work? Like if you take a borderline personality disorder, let's say there's three people in the room, right? And I walk in and somebody cut me off and I come in all hot and heavy and a little pissed off. The borderline personality disorder person thinks that I'm attacking them. That whatever is going on, they need to lash out. Mm -hmm. They're not thinking to say, oh, are you okay? It'll be all right. They're thinking that something's going on and they need to react, right? Mm -hmm. So understand that type of psychology and go interview psychologists. If they don't have the access to a psychologist, do you think a good replacement for that or another option would be maybe getting a hold of a DSM? It'll definitely help. Okay. Right, but listeners at home, is, a DSM, the what is it, the statistical ma- uh, diagnostic statistical, statistical manual of manual, mental, yeah, 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 basically the Bible of mental disorders. <laughs> Correct. So it's all the diagnoses and the criteria for those diagnoses. So yes, that is definitely going to help. I mean, okay. it's very expensive. So if you want to go ahead and spend the money, but you could probably Google it and get the same information as well. I'm oh, sure. Okay. Right? right, and there might even be. Um, like forums and stuff like that, or maybe self-help groups. Although I'd say, nah, stay out of that. That's a bad <laughs> idea. Leave people alone. Yeah, it's private, yeah. Right. But the interview, the diagnostic, and then just maybe some basic research. I'm sure there's a ton of stuff out there as well. Oh, yeah. Well, where is the strangest place you've ever gotten a story idea? <sighs> it's too funny. All right. So uh, <laughs> in 2000, um, 
this is 2004 or five. I'm working as a, um, a sleep lab technician. Okay. All right. So people with sleep apnea, they need to go in for a test, which means, <laughs> all right, you know it, right? <laughs> yep. So you go in, you get all those electros on your head. I'm the guy hooking you up. Right? All right. Awesome. That's me. And then what do I do? You sit in the back of the room all friggin' night, staying awake, mm. watching brain waves on a screen, mm. right? Yeah. Quite boring. So, and of course, as a writer, your mind starts going in different places, right? Mm-hmm. So I go outside to smoke a cigarette, you know, and I'm looking over to the side. I said, wouldn't it be just insane if there was a, like a, a demon over there looking at me and he's coming to kill me right now? Where am I going to go? Oh, wow. Right. And then I scared the shit out of myself. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go back inside. Man, dude, you're in a hospital setting. Like outside yeah. of the hospital, you're right. There's no demon there. No zombie's going to come up. But you scare the shit out of yourself uh-huh. so much, right? It's like I didn't go for a cigarette for a couple hours. So that was a story for one of your books is a sleep lab? No, actually, the story that came in place was the demon. They're like doing something with a demon coming oh, okay. out and coming to get someone. Because that, that seems it. that seems like a real good fodder for a story. A sleep lab technician that's by himself in a kind of a pod where there's different rooms. People are doing their sleep study and they're just kind of sitting there alone at that night. That would be good. Yeah. All right. It's not bad. I have another one, too. And I'll give this as a free story if anyone wants to write it right. But it's... um. So zombies in a mental health facility. Somebody comes in as an involuntary admission, uh-huh. but they're turning into a zombie. But uh, they think they're crazy and they yeah. get in there and it's all locked down, right? Uh-huh. Psychiatric facility, like yeah. asylum. And all the zombies are coming out. Nice. That's a good one. That's a good right? one. I give that as a free idea for anyone listening. Go for <laughs> it. Right. Well, is there anything that you avoid that you believe stifles your creativity? No, it's funny. I'll, <laughs> I'll give you one word on this, then we'll uh, move on. Okay. Cocaine. Really? Yeah. Wow. Don't do cocaine, man. I think Stephen, the brain. Stephen King would agree with you, too, I think, if I remember yeah. correctly. This shit's like um, scrubbing your brain with a Brillo pad. Oh, yeah. I can imagine. Complete creative um, tap, right? It's just really? Dumb. Yeah. yeah, I guess it's more like um, the amphetamines. Like, didn't Jack Kerouac used Benzedrine? He wrote on the road in like two or three weeks, I think. Just went on, like a, went on a Benzedrine binge. Right? Yeah. Speed, right? That's, yeah. That's speed, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He did. I love that novel, too. Yeah. But it was that, it's that typing of writing. But if you're in that frame of mind, you're just going for it, mm-hmm. you know? Nah, I couldn't do it. Yeah. I decided... I think it was 19 years old, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember to this day, and I was writing a novel at that time. And somebody, like a friend of mine was with me, and he wanted to smoke a joint. And I said, no, I'm writing. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, can't you smoke a joint right too? Isn't that a good way to do it? Isn't that the way you do it? And I kind of mm-hmm. got insulted, right? Because we come from a long line of addicts, us writers, right? Yeah. Um, and I'm trying to like break the mold. Let's move you know, yeah. a little bit away from that, right? So I always thought it was insulting to the work for me to write high or on anything else. Yeah. So I just don't do it. Yeah, I remember uh, Cormac McCarthy talking about he eventually quit drinking. He's like, "There's, I'm paraphrasing, but there's no greater hindrance to a writer's creativity than booze. 
But then, <laughs> then I, uh, I interviewed uh, Ronald Malfi, and he said he subscribes to Ernest Hemingway's uh, "Write drunk, edit sober." <laughs> yeah, it's too funny. Uh, Hemingway's my favorite too. Yeah, yeah, I love Hemingway. So, I actually have a um, an original Life magazine. His "Old Man in the Sea" was first no originally published shit. in Life magazine. Right. Wow. So I have an original copy as well. And the, the reason that is, is at that time is his writing career was was on the downward spiral at that point. Mm -hmm. The last couple of novels were not received very well. And they didn't think the old man in the sea would get that acclaim and be able to sell the way they thought it should. Mm -hmm. So they published it in Life magazine first. Wow. And then came out with it after after it was so popular. Interesting. And you've got right? the, what I mean, you've got the actual. Oh, shit. I'm about to see it. All right. My wife gave it to me. She framed it for me. Oh, wow. A little dusty, but... Ooh, listeners right. at home. I am looking at a framed Life magazine with Hemingway on the front in all his glory. Yeah. Outstanding. And see, can you read it? A new... Um, uh, the Old, the man, old in man in the Sea. Yeah. Right. Wow. Interesting. So, and it says... um. Is it a complete new book, first publication? Nice. Uh, yeah, that is good fodder for a uh, a writing environment. I, I'm assuming this is where you write, correct? Yes, that okay. it is. That it is. Uh, He's um, I mean, to me, he was like the last real celebrity writer. Mm -hmm. You know, like a like a you know famous director, like a, and actors are now. Back then. You know, you did have actors, but writers were still extremely had that popularity. And they had, yeah. you got to think, hundreds of years at that point, right? And he fit that mold quite perfectly. Yeah, he's such a an adventurous person. <laughs> like, yes. I mean, you could you could be interested in just what he did aside from writing, but the combination of the two is just amazing. Fantastic stuff. Well, I was listening to you on the Author Your Dream podcast, and the topic that you and the host, Kenny McKay, discussed was an email newsletter. Is there anything else like a newsletter that you can recommend to people to help them with marketing their writing? Okay, so build up that newsletter. What you could do to build up that newsletter is join like book fairs. So you're giving away a free book to get people to join your newsletter, right? Mm -hmm. Once you get a decent amount of people and it doesn't have to be astronomical amount, you know, what you do is you sign up to do like author swaps, right? That is a great um, marketing technique as well. You get featured in other authors and you're featuring them at the same time. So it's a swap. So your book gets featured there. Having a lot of success with that type of stuff, an author swap. So if you're doing the newsletter, definitely look to do an author swap as well. And you go to, um, it's called Book Funnel, bookfunnel.com. There you could upload your books. You could actually, they have tons of book fairs as well that you could do either for sales book fairs. So if you want to just sell your book, you could connect with those book fairs. And then the other ones where it's like join the newsletter to get the free book as well. You, you do both if you want. Mm -hmm. That helps to build up that newsletter. And there you could do the author swaps as well. Okay. Well, what is the life of P.D. Aleva like outside of writing? Nice. All right. So this is what we're doing. A lot of long walks. I love my long walks. Mm -hmm. A lot of walks in nature. A lot of meditation. Right. Okay. Of course, a lot of reading, too. 
and I got four kids, so I like hanging out with them. And I do like enjoying going out with my wife every once in a while as well. Date night? <laughs> Definitely love the date night, right? So mm-hmm. we have so we have four. My first two were from a previous marriage, mm-hmm. right? They're a little bit older, 20 and 24 at this point. And then we have twin boys. They're 11. So most of our time is, you know, centered around that. We get date night every once in a blue moon. Okay. But for the most part, long walks, meditation, watching some movies, of course, reading. I do like going to the beach, even if I don't go in the water. It's the lead unwind, mm-hmm. the brain unwind. Absolutely. Well, one more question, something that may help aspiring writers. What advice would you have for an aspiring writer that's having a lot of false starts that end up with them scrapping their work? Finish one of your novels, even if it's a grueling experience. Mm -hmm. If you keep starting and stopping, you'll never finish anything. You got to finish something. And more than likely, one, that sense of accomplishment that I just finished something is definitely going to motivate you to do something else. Number one. Number two, Usually what happens is as you're writing that novel and you finish that novel, other ideas are popping up that lead you in the direction you need to go. Mm -hmm. You got to finish something. Okay. If the problem they're kind of describing is, is that they get to a certain point and then they lose their direction, would you kind of recommend that kind of hybrid outline that you use where you have the beginning and the end and just fill in the middle? Yes. Okay. Yeah. 100%. All right. Get it done. You know, it's, I understand. I've been there. I've written books. And then at a certain point, I just wasn't feeling it. I kind of put it off to the side. But then the muse hits and you get back into it as well. So don't ever just completely scrap something either. Something, even if it's a few years from now, might pop into your head and you'd be like, oh, I kind of did something like that. Let me pull it out and kind of expand on it. Gotcha. Well, PD, it has been fascinating talking with you. It has been great talking to you. Good conversation. Likewise. So as we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your readers know about? Yeah, definitely. So right now with Jigglyspot coming out towards Halloween on my website, if you go to pdoliva.com, click on the blogs. It should be the second blog. It says Jigglyspot cover reveal. In that cover reveal, there is an opportunity to score a free signed hardcover or paperback. Oh. Right, it's a little bit down further on the page. Okay. But if you like signed hardcovers or paperbacks, definitely check it out. Outstanding. All right, listeners at home, all links are in the description. And PD, thank you again for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's been a great time. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast newsletter by clicking the link in the description. Be sure to tune in next Tuesday where I will have an author with a writing style that you may not be used to. Until then, stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time. So evil is changing my nature Still I'm so appalled You thought I couldn't get at you oh!